The word of the Lord comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke. If you're following along in your own Bible, we're going to read chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, directly to our hearts through your word. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me for prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, for a story of faith and of faithfulness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves in your word and to know what you have for us this day. Lord, I ask that you would meet with us now in this space and this time. Open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word. Open our hearts that we would feel its power. Then we ask that you would open our hands, O oh God, that we would go forth and offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I shared a little bit about uh, my understanding of my parents' midlife crisis, uh, both my mom and my dad, and, and, and all that they were going through, and I shared a little bit about what that looks like. But, you know, what's interesting is I, I neglected to, to, to identify uh, my own midlife crisis, what I think, you know, I don't know if you know when you're going through a midlife crisis until you're on the other side and then you look back, uh, but I, I think I'm beginning to have that sort of uh, crisis in me, and, and, and it's not uh, a midlife crisis as much as it's an identity crisis. You know, for the last uh, years, I've identified my, uh, myself as a church planter. That's, that's been, first and foremost, who I thought I was. Uh, and, and I put that above uh, so many other things. In 2005, I was at a conference of, of church leaders, pastors, and, and, and lay leaders, and uh, our bishop at the time, Bishop Huey, uh, stood before the whole uh, body and said, the Lord God Almighty is calling us to plant churches. Uh, 
church plants uh, uh, allow space for uh, innovation to take place, allow space for, uh, for, for the Holy Spirit to invade uh, communities that, 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 that otherwise uh, feel uh, as though they're neglected. Uh, th- there are more professions of faith that are taking pl- place in church plants. There's more reaffirmations of faith that are taking place in church plants. People are coming to the Lord in, in drastic numbers in church plants. As we as Methodists have, have stepped away from church planting in large part in the last 20 or 30 years. And so God, in 2005, he said, God is calling us to plant a hundred new churches in 10 years. And I was just blown away by this. And she said, and, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to listen to God right now. And this is in a community of church planters and lay leaders of existing churches. She said to everyone, she said, I, I want you to consider if the Lord God Almighty is calling you to be a part of planting a church. Pastors, we need pastoral leaders to plant churches. Is God calling you to plant a church? And in that moment, just the Holy Spirit overwhelmed me, came upon me. And I was blown away that, that this would be what God was calling me to for, in large part because I, I'm a preacher's kid and I grew up in churches and I never quite realized that church planting even existed, which seems radical uh, now for me to, to be that ignorant, but, you know, I was always in existing churches, and, and I never thought that uh, Wharton United Methodist Church, and Missouri City United Methodist Church, and Bethany United Methodist Church, and, and China United Methodist Church, and Nome United Methodist Church, and uh, First United Methodist Church Orange, all these churches at one time did not exist. I sat in those pews, and I, and I sang from those hymnals, and, uh, and, and I was in the youth choirs, uh, and all the like, and I never conceived of the fact, the truth, that those churches didn't exist at one point in time. And so in that moment when the Holy Spirit came upon me and I uh, was overwhelmed by the truth uh, of, of God calling me to be a church planter, I, uh, I set a course, and uh, a course of obedience. And so for the, for the last 15 years, that's been uh, so much of who I am. But about six months ago, uh, something happened. Uh, not only did we move in the building last April, but then uh, in the fall, I realized I did have an office. Have you seen it? I have an office. There, there's an office here. It's not McDonald's anymore. Uh, I had a booth in the gas station McDonald's at the Shell Station down at West Rayford and Kirkendall. That was my office for years. Uh, free refills for eight all day long. It's ridiculous. And they have dependable Wi-Fi. Uh, and it's not as crowded as Starbucks, and it's not as, anyway, so, um, but now I have an office, and so I looked around in my office, and I realized I didn't have anything on the walls, and I had nothing on the bookshelves, and like how, uh, okay, I needed to formalize this, and so I put like my degrees and my credentials on the walls so I could feel important, and then I like filled the bookshelves with all these books that I read long ago that, uh, uh, and, and so then I sat down in my chair in my office, and I was confronted with the fact that I'm no longer a church planter. Just like, been a, you know, Lord called me to plant churches in 2005. If I'm not a church planter, who am I? Because I had, uh, in large part, defined myself by my job. <clears throat> no, 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 you secular folks, that's not, it's not just you. You're not the only ones that, that feel uh, as though your job defines who you are. Uh, 
even for pastors, there's all different sorts of pastors that do all different sorts of things. And then there's, and, and, and the question is, uh, it, it, does your job define who you are? Or does something much different and much more important define who you are? And so that's what I am living into. This truth that my identity is not wrapped up in being a church planter. My identity is found in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want that to be good news for you as well. If you are placing your identity in your workplace, in your job, in, in anything else, in all of creation except Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, then I'm inviting in you into a new space and a new consideration. So God is going uh, to use me in this next season of my pastoral ministry, and I'm looking forward to see how God's going to d- define who I need to be for all of you and for this community to which I've been called, uh, and, and to continue to work alongside of you here at Covenant. Uh, but my prayer as my pastoral ministry gains more clarity and more, uh, more definition is that I never lose sight, no matter what God tells me my hands will be set to, on the fact that I am first and foremost the child of the Most High King, and I serve the the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's where my identity is found. And, and identity, for us to move into that identity, to live into that identity, it requires surrender. It means that we have to surrender so much of what we've worked for, so much of what we strive after, so much of what we build our lives upon to that identity, that we have to make it subservient to uh, our identity in Christ. And, and, and that can look like uh, uh, as I said last week, stages of grief, and that's what we're going to be working through over five weeks. You, you might have heard of the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and hope. They're not linear. They're not cyclical. They, they, they bounce, you bounce back and forth between them. If you've ever gone through grief, you experience loss. You've mourned. You know that, that those, are, those are things that come in waves, and, 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 and you arrive at hope, and then you think you're, you're, you're at some resolution or conclusion, but another wave of mourning or grief will, will wash over you, and you'll come back into one of those earlier stages. They come and they go. And last week, we talked about denial. This week, one of the stages of grief and one of the stages of surrender is anger. And for me, that's quite interesting because, because uh, my, uh, my profession of faith when I became a Christian uh, was, was wrapped up in a story that, that, that had anger and surrender evidenced in close proximity to one another. I was in high school, and as a high school student in East Texas, we often went to a camp called Lakeview. Uh, Lakeview is in Palestine, Texas. It's uh, a Methodist church camp, and, and uh, students go there during the summer for a week-long camp, and I was there for a weekend trip in uh, what we called midwinter, and uh, it's right around early February. And so we go there for a weekend, and one of the ways that we differentiated ourselves as Methodists from the Baptists is our youth camps had dances. And so uh, at youth camp, we all gathered together, and uh, we, we spotted the, 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 the girls, the guys that we thought were, were going to be our camp crushes, and, uh, and we got ready, we got gussied up, and we went to the dance. And the dance was in Copeland uh, 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 Center, and so I remember walking in that night as a high school student, uh, and I was... Uh, you know, fashionably late because I had to run the comb through my hair a couple more times, and 
And I walked in, and I had already identified the girl that I was uh, most interested in. And whenever I walked in, I saw that the girl uh, of my dreams, my camp sweetheart forever, was dancing with another guy. Not only was she dancing with another guy, she was dancing with a guy that was much more handsome than I was, much taller than I was, much stronger than I was, and I had no chance. And when I saw it, I was deflated, I was frustrated, and in fact, I was angry. And I walked out of the room trying to hide my emotions because, you know, everybody uh, from my church had already understood that that was the girl that I had intended to, uh, to dance with that night. And so, uh, you know, in crushing defeat, I went into the restroom and I went into one of the stalls uh, and, and I uh, allowed myself to just wrestle. And I was struggling and I was angsty and I was teenagery and I was all sorts of frustrated and angry. And then something welled up in me. And, uh, and, and I just felt emotion overwhelm me, and it turned into anger, and I clenched my fist, and I reared back, and I punched the metal partition in the bathroom water closet. And a few tears streamed down my face, less about my hand and my anger, and more about what that was a symbol was for me at that time in my life. You see, my family was going through some trauma. My parents were going through a divorce, uh, and I was—I uh, had been dealing with anger. And I had seen a counselor, and the counselor was trying to coach me through uh, stages of, you know, not hurting your sister anymore, which is, you know, not hurting others, not hurting yourself, not hurting things, and then peace. And so uh, I thought I was past hurting myself. And then I went back into it. And I was frustrated and angry. I was actually angry that I had been angry. But I shrunk down on the toilet in that Lakeview bathroom. I looked up at the dent that I had put in that stall door which was still there uh, until about five years ago when we finally renovated the camp because that's how we do deferred maintenance as Methodists. Um, but I shrunk down on the toilet and uh, I just cried. And it wasn't about like the girl or the dance. Um, my counselor had told me, and it has stuck with me all these years, that... Um, God is big enough to handle your anger. Not to handle it like control it, but to receive it. And that as you go through life, you'll experience anger. Some of the anger is sin and is an evidence of your brokenness. Some of the anger is righteous indignation and there's holiness in that anger for me, I was dealing with an anger that was sin and an evidence of my brokenness, but in that space, I knew that God was able because I had gone deep down into a space of emotion that I didn't want to go to. The very next night uh, at camp worship that night, 
I was sitting down on the floor of the Copeland Center, the same room that the dance was in, and I had my friend Tim and my friend Philip on either side, and there was an invitation of the Holy, uh, to, uh, of the Holy Spirit to respond to the movement of God in your life and to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in that time, every doubt that I had been clinging to, I released and I turned over to God and I gave my life to Jesus. It's as though the vulnerability of my anger, the honesty of my anger, led me to a space where I was capable of surrender. Because until I went through the depths, I couldn't see the light. There's a, uh, a beautiful story that we read that Zach read just a few moments ago. It's a story of a, of, of a woman uh, who we know so little about, but we know so much about because we know what life looks like and what, and what pain looks like. This is a woman that approaches Jesus, and, it's, and, and, and it says that she has been uh, afflicted by an ailment of bleeding for 12 years. Uh, 12 years. Can, can you imagine this? This, is, this, is, uh, this requires us to put it in the lens of paralysis or autoimmune disorder or, or a life's journey of affliction of some sort. This isn't, this isn't I, I, I got the flu and I got better or uh, I broke my leg and had a cast and got better. This is a life debilitating, life altering, life changing ailment that she is living with for 12 years. And you know, like those early stages, the stages of confusion, the stages of like, is this really happening? Did this really happen to me? And, and, and wondering why. And then that confusion that turns to a why turns to anger and it wells up within you. Like, like, how could you do this, God? How does this happen to me? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why have I been afflicted with this? And so these questions well up and the struggle is real and the turmoil is real and it, and it becomes anger and then it turns turns into a state of isolation. And for her, the isolation wasn't just something that she withdrew into, but it's a cultural isolation. You see, for, for, for when a woman was, was, was afflicted with an ailment like this, a, an ailment of bleeding, she was deemed unclean. She was cast out of relationship. She was cast out of community. She had no experience in the religious, uh, religious rites of the church. She was not able to, to, to administer sac uh, sacrifices to be made pure or holy. And so all of these things put her as an outcast. Something that she would have had to learn to come to deal with, come to grips with. And she would have been overwhelmed with so much pain over the course of these 12 years. And so we, we see this story, we see this approach, and, and this, this approach is, is, is quite different than, than the one that uh, just precedes it. At, at the very opening of what we read today, uh, we, we see that there's a religious leader that comes and approaches Jesus. There's a crowd that's gathered around Jesus. They're there for teaching, for healing. They're, they're there uh, to be sent out, uh, to learn. And, and so there's this, this religious leader, Jairus, he comes and he kneels before Jesus. And he looks up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, my daughter, she's 12 years old. She's about to die. She's on her deathbed. Please come heal her. 
he offers that request, that humble request. And in that space, Jesus responds, gets up from where he is. Uh, you know, the, the whole crowd that's been gathered, he, he moves on from them and he journeys to see Jairus' daughter. But the crowd then changes, it shifts. Uh, I, I, they they might have been there for, for teaching or for learning or for miracles to happen there, but now they knew something incredible was about to happen. Someone was going to be uh, experiencing a life-saving miracle. And it says that the crowds then, then changed, and now that they were pressing upon Jesus. It actually says that, they're, that they were like crushing Jesus. And so as the crowds are crushing in on Jesus, we have our second healing request now from this woman who's been afflicted with bleeding for 12 years. And, and it's as though she sees her opportunity. Her approach is so very different than that approach of Jairus. She, she sees her opportunity and she reaches in. And as Jesus is passing by, she touches his cloak. She didn't touch his hand. She didn't bump into him. She didn't make eye-to-eye contact or offer any request of any sort. All she did was touch his garment. And at that very moment, the bleeding stopped. How many times had she prayed that prayer? How many times had she considered, is this the moment where a miracle could take place? Make it the moment a miracle would take place. And it was real. She touched Jesus' cloak and the bleeding stopped. You know, as it says that the crowds were crushing in on Jesus, I find it uh, uh, just uh, absolutely crazy that Jesus felt the power shifting from him. Did y'all catch that in the scripture? Uh, we, we don't often hear the detail of what those miracles look like or felt like for Jesus, but here we have a very clear depiction of it, that, that, that Jesus says uh, to, to, to his disciples, he, he's walking through the crowds, he has 12 disciples there, kind of helping him make his way through it, but the crowds are overwhelming, they're crushing in on him, and when he feels the power flow through him, boom, in that moment he stops and he freezes and the disciples must have been like, hey, come on, we got to get to Jairus' daughter. Like, she's going to die, Jesus. She's going to die. And, uh, and he stops and says, no, someone touched me. And the disciples must have been like, oh, yeah, everyone touched you. All, all the people here touched We touched you. What are you talking about, Jesus? Everyone touched you. What are you talking about? Somebody touched me, Jesus said. And the woman who had been conditioned by her 12 years of pain, rejection, isolation, that certainly led to anger and frustration, shrunk back into the hidden recesses of the crowd so that she would be just another bystander. And I could hear the disciples, hey, who touched Jesus? 
Which one of you touched Jesus? And she's just hiding back in the backdrop. And it says that, that, that everyone denied it. Then everyone denied it. And when everybody denied it, Jesus was still defiant. He said, no, I know that someone touched me. I know that power flowed from me. I know that there was a healing done here. I need to know who touched me. And this woman has a second transformation begin. You see, she's isolated. She's in the shadows. She's been healed from the blood. But now there's something more that Jesus has for her. You see, she comes forward and she, come and she bends her knees just as Jairus did. And she proclaims to Jesus, I touched you. I believed that you could heal me. And so I reached out my hand and I touched you. And when I touched you, the bleeding stopped. When I touched you, I was healed. I was made well. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. But get this, but get this. Go in peace. Now, for us, you know, at, at the end of worship, I say go in peace. peace. Peace be with you, brothers and sisters. At the end of my emails, I say peace. I say peace a lot. I say peace like when I leave you a voicemail. You're like, is Jason like uh, a hip-hop addict from the 1990s? Yes, and uh, I believe in the biblical element of peace that, that is shalom. Shalom is, is, is a restoration of all things, a wholeness, a peace that, that, that resolves. And whenever, whenever original sin entered into the world in the garden, uh, their shalom was broken. And we are on a journey of salvation. And when we, when we encounter Jesus, we receive shalom. And one day, on that final victory day, we will receive the, the, the fullness of shalom that all will be restored. And so when, when Jesus says to, to this woman, this woman who's been healed from the physical ailment, he says, go in peace. Go now and be restored. You are uniquely and absolutely different, changed, because of this encounter. I want you to hear this from Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 8. It articulates uh, what, what these two moments are for this woman, this, this healing from the bleeding and this healing from, uh, from her spiritual ailment. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, it's, on, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart, both mouth and heart. That is the message concerning the faith we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, see, heart and mouth. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's this both and reality that we have an internal heart transformation that takes place when we, when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But that leads us to, to step forward out of the shadows, out into the light, and say, Jesus is my Lord, with our lips. It's something that we proclaim and we say, so that it's, it's not just a, a partial healing. I'm not just going to settle for a physical healing. I want a spiritual healing as well. Jesus has both for you this day. Some of you have been waiting for a physical healing, and the spiritual healing has been there the whole time. 
And he says, don't just come for a part of me, come for all of me. I have this peace that restores all things. It passes all understanding. It has salvation for you. Something that not only gives you abundant life today, but it gives you eternal life tomorrow. Come and get it all. I have salvation for you. And so a woman who has experienced so much frustration and anger and pain in her life then surrenders and bows her knees before Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe. Peace, he says, is yours. That is a gift of surrender, brothers and sisters, and that gift is there for you this day as well. In a few moments, Ezra's going to come forward to be baptized, and and a little while back, Ezra was in worship, and uh, he went home, and he met with his folks, and he told his folks, I want to be baptized. They said, you, you know what that means? Yeah, it means that, I, that, that I, I'm accepting Jesus. He's ready to not just feel it in here, but to say it with his lips so that the world would know that he is forever changed. That invitation is here for you as well this day. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, you formed us in your image, breathed into us the breath of life. And yet we, we fail, we fall short, we are broken in sin, and yet you create space for us to, to know your love, to know your grace, and to experience the truth, the truth that we have peace in you. Lord, heal us, we pray. Restore us so that we might live according to your purpose for our life as servants of your Son, Jesus Christ.